Great. Well, thank you for allowing me to be here. Let me get my notes up because I need notes. All right. So, as many of you know, um, we are not going to be in the typical passages you guys have been going through. You've already seen the bulletin. We, at our church, as citizens in Westerville, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. And we've been going through that passage by passage in a similar way that you guys go passage through passage. We just think that that's the best way to look at the scriptures. You can see the full context of it. You can better understand what's going on. And so there's the risk of me coming in and looking at Mark, just kind of parachuting right into Mark, you guys not knowing that context. So we will, um, I'll give you some background into that. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark. Chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. And if you're not sure where that is, Mark's in the New Testament. New Testament's about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you get to Luke and John, you've gone too far. Come on back. But we're in Mark. Big numbers are the chapters. Little numbers are the verses. 32 is where we will start. So I will read that and then pray, and then we can jump right into this. Mark 14, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with them Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Father, thank you for the gift that it is to be here with Proclamation Church. Thank you for the way you've been working in this church. Lord, as a church plant in Westerville, we're so encouraged to see what you're doing in other church plants, even in the midst of a difficult season that COVID has brought these past couple years. Thank you for the way that you have fulfilled your promise to continue to build your church. We see that explicitly in this local congregation, and we give you praise for it. We ask that you would continue to provide fruitful ministry. We ask that you would provide endurance, as it has been a difficult season, not just for proclamation, but for other churches as well. But Lord, continue to give them endurance. God, we pray for those who may be hurting this morning those who need 
to hear from you. We ask that you in your grace would speak to them through your word. We pray that you would bring comforting words. Pray that what we see in the passage today would be balm to a wound. God, we pray for more churches like proclamation that would be raised up, that would be word-centered churches, that would be gospel-proclaiming churches. Please do raise up more. Revitalize other churches that are in need. And Lord, as we're aware of the things that are going on in Russia and Ukraine, as Rick has already prayed for them, Lord, I just want to reiterate, Lord, we ask that you would bring about peace. We ask that you'd give our world leaders wisdom. We ask for our country's primary leader, President Biden, to have wisdom. We pray that that wisdom would be rooted in a regenerate heart, that you would bring him to faith. Lord, we pray that throughout this current conflict, that the gospel would somehow go forward, that there would be unreached groups that hear the gospel, that there would be conversions as people consider imminent death, that they would consider Christ. Lord, we trust you to work. We're grateful that all these things are still in your hand. And now we ask that in this local congregation, here this morning, as we look at your word, that you would work. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we've already mentioned Russia and Ukraine twice now, but it is worth noting, because it actually helps me get into the main point here, that as Russia and Ukraine, as everything goes on on the world scale, it's incredible to see how many nations, how many individuals are constantly watching. I've found myself, I'm not huge on social media, but I found myself checking Twitter a lot because that's super up-to-date information. I really want to know what is going on with Russia and Ukraine. It's discouraging to see the way that things have folded out, but the whole world right now watching this take place are incredibly watchful. Merriam-Webster describes watchful as the state of being constantly attentive and responsive to signs of opportunity, activity, or danger. Opportunity, activity, or danger. The Russia-Ukraine situation right now is clearly a very dangerous situation. People are watchful because of the danger. But I would submit to you that regardless of location, regardless of people group, Christian and non-Christian, we are all called to be watchful. We're all called to be watchful. And the reason we're called to be watchful is because the hour is coming. We read in this passage that Jesus asked the Father to remove the hour from him, to remove the cup from him. And because that hour is coming, we are all called to be watchful. Jesus commanded his disciples there to remain and to watch. There's a reason for that. And we'll get into it, but as we look at this passage, there's some things that I hope we'll see. I hope, I hope we'll see the honesty that God welcomes from his own. We see Jesus praying very explicitly to the Father, very honestly. We see the honesty that God welcomes from his children. We'll see, perhaps, if it can be said, the greatest display of faithfulness in Jesus' ministry. Jesus was perfectly faithful, so it's difficult to say that one situation was more faithful than the other. However, if there was one, it's right here. 
This passage, what we read here, is perhaps the greatest display of faithfulness in Jesus' ministry. And then, Lord willing, we'll gain a better understanding of what it means for Jesus to be the God-man, something that Christians have wrestled with and come to conclusions on, but it's helpful for us, even this morning in 2022, with all the things going around the world, to understand why it's important that Jesus is the God-man. And so I told you I'd give you some background into Mark so that we didn't parachute in too abruptly. So just real quick, I'll fly through this. Mark, the book of Mark, was written by John Mark. He was the attendant of Peter. And so a lot of the things that you read in his gospel is what he heard from Peter. And so when we read about passages right here where Peter looks foolish, it's further evidence that this is real stuff. This really happened. Because if you're, if you're trying to create a religion and you're the one that people are getting a lot of source material from, typically, you're not going to paint yourself in a bad light. Probably say, hey, you know what? There was a time when Jesus told me to do something, and I nailed it. And then there was another time, and I, and I, I nailed that too. So you should really look to me, because I, I'm the guy. When Peter ex- is explaining this to Mark, and Mark's writing it down, and it's embarrassing stuff, it's failures of Peter, it's further evidence that this is true, that what we're reading is True. There's no other reason why he would include these things in there. And so the theme for the book of Mark, so whenever you, if you find yourself in the book of Mark, the overarching theme that you'll find is that it's God restoring his wayward people back to himself. He does that through the person, through the work of Jesus Christ. Now this particular passage, Jesus is less than 24 hours away from his death. They just had a Passover meal on Thursday night. And they're deep into the night. They had sacrificed the lamb. They'd had the meal. Jesus revealed that one of the disciples, Judas, was going to betray him. And then he institutes the Lord's Supper, which is essentially the new Passover meal. And then they sing a hymn, and they head out to the Mount of Olives. On the way, Jesus reveals that all the disciples are going to fall away from him very soon. And Peter, again, first-hand information, tells John Mark that here's what I said. I said, no way, Jesus. All these other disciples might fall away, all these other chumps, but you know I won't. I will not fall away. And Jesus says, well, well, actually, you're going you're gonna to fall away worse than all these others. You're going to deny me not once, not twice, but three times, and it's going to be this very night before the crow or before the rooster crows. And so Peter responds to that. He says, Nope, still think you're wrong. That's not going to happen. And the rest of the disciples agree. And they say, even if we must die, we will never betray you. And so now we find ourselves, as they are having this conversation on the way to the Mount of Olives, we now find ourselves in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is in the Mount of Olives. And Lord willing, as we go through this, there are three points that I hope you'll see very clearly. The first is the emotions of Jesus the prayer of Jesus, and the faithfulness of Jesus. So the emotions of Jesus, the prayer of Jesus, and the faithfulness of Jesus. And so the emotions of Jesus is that first one that we're going to jump into, and we see that they have now arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane. We see that in verse 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane, If you were to literally translate that, it means olive press, 
which makes sense if they're in the Mount of Olives. This place is called Olive Press. There's a lot of olives in this general area. And Jesus goes ahead of his disciples, but he takes Peter, James, and John with him. So they get to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, you, because there's 11 of them now, Judas has left at this point, you eight stay here, and I'm going to take Peter, James, and John with me, and we're going to go a little bit further on by ourselves. Now, James Edwards, commenting on this, points out that these are exactly the three that Jesus should take. He says, all three, Peter, James, and John, have earlier crowed of their merit. They should be exactly the companions Jesus needs in his crisis before them. So here's what he's talking about. In Mark 14, 29, so just a few verses earlier, Peter is said to have told Jesus, even though they all fall away, I will not. So Peter, clearly, all right, you say that you're reliable, let's take you. And then we see James and John in Mark 10, 38 through 39. They say, uh, Jesus said to them, this is after they approach Jesus, and they say, hey, in your new kingdom, let us sit at your right hand and your left. Let us sit right there, the most honorable places in your new kingdom. We believe this new kingdom's coming. Let us sit at your right hand and your left. And Jesus responds to them in Mark 10. He says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. So of course, if he's going to go a little further with three of them, he's going to take Peter, James, and John, who have crowed of their merit. And just a verse earlier, all of them said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So in light of that, Jesus takes these three. And he moves on a little bit further. And he begins to share his emotions with these three. He says he's greatly distressed. says that he's troubled. says that he's very sorrowful, even to death. That very sorrowful, even to death, could be literally translated as grief without measure. It's the kind of grief that you have when you lose a loved one. Now, why does Jesus feel this? He knew why he was coming. He knew why he was coming to earth to, to purchase the salvation of his people. He knew that he was going to have to endure suffering. Why is it now that it's come that he's feeling this this immense sorrow, even to the point of death, this grief without measure. It's because Jesus knew that he was getting ready to lose a loved one. He was getting ready to lose intimacy with the Father. He was getting ready to be forsaken by his Father for the first time in his entire life. He's never experienced that. Sinclair Ferguson points out, he says, Jesus was about to be exposed to the one thing in life he really feared. Not the cruel death which would end it, he knew he would rise again, but the indescribable experience of feeling himself to be God forsaken. The one thing Jesus feared was feeling himself to be God forsaken. And he says to his three, that he's greatly distressed, he's troubled, he's very sorrowful, even to the point of death. He has this grief without measure. And so in his hour of greatest need, what does he ask of his disciples? 
says, remain here and watch. Just stay awake. Just do me this favor. Keep your eyes open. And that word watch, it's an active verb. And so it's more than just a passive effort. It actually requires effort. It's not done passively. We see the same word used in a couple other places throughout the New Testament. I'll give a couple examples. The first one is 1 Peter 5.8, where we read, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. There's an active watchfulness that Jesus is asking of. 1 Thessalonians 5.6, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. That same word could be used for watchful or for staying awake, but it's an active effort. It's an active verb. It requires some effort. And so Jesus is saying, hey, look, I feel stress. I feel sorrow. I feel grief. Here's what I'm asking you. Peter, James, and John, stay awake. Look out for danger. It's coming. Judas has betrayed me. Jesus knows what's coming. So he just asks them to stay awake. He shares his emotion with his three question for us this morning. Do you have your three that you can share embarrassing emotions with? Most intimate emotions with? Maybe it's not literally three. Maybe it's two. Maybe it's three. Maybe it's one. Do you have a group of people that you can be completely transparent with? We as, as image bearers of God, made in his image, we are made to be in intimate community with one another. Consider the Trinity. God, for all eternity, has been in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have to have those whom we can share intimate, transparent details of our lives with for to walk faithfully in this Christian life. Who are your three? What emotions are you embarrassed to share? I want to encourage you to take them to a couple brothers, men, women, take them to a couple sisters. Have a couple people that you can share your most transparent details with. Maybe you are, maybe you're hurting this morning. You prayed for the hurting. There's a very honest transaction that's going on here, interaction that Jesus is having with his disciples. He has been leading them these past few years, and now he gets to this point where he's extremely sorrowful. And he could easily have said, you know what, I've been leading them, I've got to put on a strong face. Because if I don't, there's a chance that this whole mission could be compromised. And there's a temptation there. But Jesus is not only our Savior, but in many ways, he is also our model. And he models for us what to do with those deep emotions that we feel. Take them to others. He tells his disciples to remain and to watch if you're a disciple this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, that command is still for you. Remain and watch. Remain and watch. Remain with Christ. I don't know what you're going through. You may be in a very encouraging season of life. You may be in the deepest valley that you've ever been in. But they say the two greatest testing points in a Christian's life are when things are going extremely well and when things are going extremely poorly. Because when things are going extremely well, the temptation is I don't need God. Things are going well. Even if I have a little bit of a setback, things are still going pretty well. When things are going really bad, there's the temptation to say, God, you put me here. And I'm frustrated. 
So whether you are in an encouraging season, whether you're in a difficult season, I would encourage you, look at the command that Jesus gave his disciples. Remain in Christ. And watch. Watch for danger. Be aware of anything that could take your gaze off of Jesus. Jesus knew this hour was coming. He feels it pressing in. It's overwhelming. But he doesn't bear it by himself. He takes it to others. However, his transparency doesn't stop with the disciples. It goes even further. He then takes it to his father. And so now we see in the second point the prayer of Jesus. In verse 35, after Jesus has now left the three and gone a little further past them, we see that Jesus fell to the ground. He didn't kneel. He fell. He threw himself down on the ground. His sorrow led him to that. And he begged God that the hour would pass from him. Luke, the physician, in his gospel, says that Jesus literally sweated drops of blood. See that in Luke 22. That he began to sweat great drops of blood. The National Library of Medicine um, talks about this. says that bloody sweating is called hematohydrosis. Most cases occur in bleeding disorders. It may, however occur in individuals suffering from extreme levels of stress. Jesus was suffering from extreme levels of stress. And he just shared that with his disciples. And now he's taking it to his father. And he asked the father to remove the hour from him. So I've said this term, the hour, probably half a dozen times, if not more already. So what does it mean? The hour is God's judgment against sin. It's his perfect wrath against sin. It's where the righteousness and justice and goodness of God will meet the wickedness of sin. At that hour, it will be made right. God will address sin. There is no sin that will not be addressed. And Jesus knows that he is getting ready to take on the sins of his people. And those sins are about to be met with God's perfect justice. So he says, Abba, Father. Abba is essentially just Father in a very dear and intimate way. It's an endearing term that children would use toward their own fathers. Adults would also use the term to address their fathers. And so the term, the idea that daddy is the um, equivalent to father isn't quite accurate. It's helpful, I'm not, I'm not trying to poo-poo on it, but it's not totally um, consistent. And so the, if you have an ESV study Bible, which is a great study Bible, they have a note on this, which I think is helpful and would agree with. They say that Abba was the word used by Jewish children for their earthly fathers. However, since the term in both Aramaic and Greek was also used by adults to address their fathers, the claim that Abba meant daddy is misleading and runs the risk of irreverence. And so, Father, I mean, maybe, maybe you're thinking, okay, so I, I like to say Daddy in my prayers. Is, is that a bad thing? No, do what your conscience permits. Um, father is still probably the best term, or even Abba Father, just the, the terminology that we see right there, Abba Father. But what I want to get across is that that Abba there is conveying the idea that the Father 
is, in fact, everything a father is meant to be. It's not just a title for God, but it's a perfect reality that he is perfectly loving and caring and providing and protective. He's perfectly encouraging. He's guiding. He's doing all the things that a good and perfect father is meant to do. And so when Jesus says, Abba, Father, he's saying, you are, in every good sense of the term, my father. And one of the good senses of that term is that he can take really difficult things to him. Some of you in the room, I don't know everybody's father situation, but maybe you have a dad or had a dad that you couldn't take certain things to. We see here Jesus asking that his entire mission to save humanity would be altered in some way. He knows the hour is coming, and he asked the Father to remove this hour from him, if at all possible. He says, remove this hour, remove the cup from me. This cup, for sake of time, we won't get into it, but the, the cup is the cup of God's wrath. If you want to jot down some verses to look into that, I have a few for you. You can look at Psalm 75, 8, Isaiah 51, 17, Isaiah 51, 22, Jeremiah 25, 15, and Revelation 14, 10. Just some verses to, to help you understand what Jesus means when he says the cup. And if you couldn't write those down quick enough to see me afterward, I'd be happy to, to share those with you. But Jesus knows that he's getting ready to face God's perfect justice against sin. And it's terrifying. He, he also knew, even as he asked, he also knew that the cup was not going to be removed from him. However, he's ready to submit to the Father's will, even though he's not getting what he is asking for. If you've ever brought something to God, and you've been discouraged that God has not answered that prayer in the way that you would have desired, you're in good company. Jesus himself had prayers not answered the way that he wanted them to be answered. In his greatest moment of need, he prayed a prayer that did not get answered the way that he wanted it to be answered. But his response is not what I will, but what you will. Jesus was ready to submit to the Father's will, even if that meant his death. The question is this morning, is that you? Whatever you may be going through, be perfectly honest. Be very transparent with God. He welcomes that from his children. But don't base your faithfulness off of how his answer is. Continue to pursue Christ, even if you do not get the answer that you would have liked to have gotten in your prayers. And so when Jesus says, not what I will, but what you will, that also raises up some questions. And Christians throughout the centuries have tried to wrestle with this. And it wasn't until 451 with the Chalcedonian Creed that it was actually uh, set, that they came to a final agreement. This is what we believe here. And what I'm getting at is that if Jesus, who is perfectly God, says not what I will, but what you will, does that imply that there are multiple wills within the Godhead? He's saying, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is God, so is he saying that there are multiple wills here? Just give you the answer now, no. However, 
it gets into what we were talking about earlier before we really got diving in here, is that Jesus is the God-man. He is perfectly God. He's 100% divine, but he's also 100% man. And so when Jesus, in his full humanity, gets hungry, he has a desire for food. Previously, when the son, before the son took on flesh, he never had to have a desire for food. He wouldn't get tired. So Jesus, in the flesh, when he gets tired, desires rest. God does not need rest in the way that we need rest. When he is in danger, in his perfect humanity, he wants to live in the same way that we would want to preserve life. And so we see him here not having a division of wills within the Godhead, but we see Jesus modeling for us what it looks like to submit our human will to the divine will. Submitting his humanity to the goodness of the Father. Submitting his human will to the divine will. We see Jesus' desire to preserve his life. And yet, to be faithful, to ensure that he continues on in faithfulness, he's willing to give up his life. He says, not what I will, but what you will. If you want to do some further reading on that, I would encourage you to, to read the Chalcedonian Creed that was in 451 AD. It is very brief. You could read it in less than 60 seconds. It's not a, a huge document. And just read it slowly and meticulously because every word there, they were much more careful with words than we are today. Every word there is placed for a reason. So I'd encourage you to check that out if you want to dive further into that. But here's what I want us to see with this second passage of Jesus' prayer is that Jesus was extremely honest with the Father. And as those who are in Christ, as those who are called Christians, Christ followers, we too are called to be extremely honest with the Father. Extremely honest. Do we, do we pray? Do we see Jesus praying here? Do we pray the way that Jesus prayed? Do we talk to God like he is our Abba Father? Or do we talk to God like he is a distant cousin that we see at a family reunion that we should talk to because they're family and we probably don't want to talk about anything too controversial because we don't want to offend and ruin the relationship. But we're willing to talk. Or do we talk to him like the true and genuine and authentic and loving father that he really is? How do you approach God? Like Abba Father or like a distant cousin? All right. Keep this on. Okay. Whoa, there, you're right. You're not kidding. All right. Um, so just to recap, there's not a division of wills within the Godhead. There's a clear picture of the two natures of Jesus, that he is perfectly human and he is perfectly divine. And this is a necessary truth. This isn't just some tangent, some theological tangent to, to look smart. This is necessary for salvation. If Jesus is not 100% man, then he cannot represent humanity on the cross. If he's not 100% divine, then he cannot represent God on the cross. But because he is 100% man and 100% God, then on the cross, God can punish the sins of his people because he is punishing a man and he can extend the love of God because Jesus, the God-man, is the one who is on the cross. 
in order for us to be reunited to God, in order for us to be restored to God, as the Gospel of Mark is about the God restoring his wayward people, there needs to be a perfect representative for God and there needs to be a perfect representative for man. And Jesus fulfills that. Jesus takes on the sin of his people and then he gives his people the righteousness of God so that we can commune with God again. Jesus knows the hour is coming, and so he seeks the Father diligently, and he seeks the Father honestly in prayer. So I'd encourage you guys, pray together. Pray often. Pray honestly. Be transparent in your prayers. Rather than a time limit, because if you're like me, you can say, hey, I should pray for at least 10 minutes. I should pray for at least 30 minutes. And you can find a way to fill that 10 or 30 or 60, whatever time limit you have. You can find a way to fill it. I would encourage you, rather than setting a time limit, Set a standard. Are my prayers honest? Or are they transactional? Am I just bringing the same things again because I need to fill the time? Are my prayers honest? Am I talking to God as if he truly is Abba Father? So we've seen the emotions of Jesus. We've seen the prayer of Jesus. And now we look at the faithfulness of Jesus. So remember, at the beginning of this passage, Jesus asked Peter, James, and John to remain here and watch. And now we see in verse 37, if you look there with me, and he came and found them sleeping. He found them sleeping. His greatest hour of need when he just asked them, just keep your eyes open, just stay awake. They fell asleep. And Jesus corrects them. In verse 38, he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The disciples here are prone to fall into temptation. They're prone to be led toward apathy. And they would, they would be against that. They would say, no, we certainly, we do want to stay awake. We're not trying to be apathetic. However, the flesh is weak. And so Jesus essentially, after he tells them that, hits repeat. He goes back and he prays the same thing again. And then the disciples, again, fall asleep. And then Jesus goes back and prays again, and the disciples, again, have fallen asleep. Now, Jesus is, he doesn't suffer from a bad memory. The reason he's bringing these things to the Father again, he says he prayed the same thing. It's not because he has a bad memory, and he thinks that the Father is hard on hearing, but because he recognizes that persistent prayer is effective. In Luke 18, we see the parable of a widow with an unrighteous judge, and she continues to go to him day after day, asking him to bring her justice. And the judge says, look, you know what? I don't fear God or man, but this woman is a pest. I'm just going to give her justice. And we see Luke 18, after Jesus tells this parable, he says, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? So if an unrighteous judge is able to give a woman justice, how much more so the righteous judge of all creation? So this continues to happen. Jesus prays to the Father. Disciples fall asleep. And then in verse 41, Jesus gets back there after the third time, and he says, you know what, it's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus knows that his hour has arrived. He knows that the, the father did not answer his prayer in the way that he wanted. The hour was not taken from him. It's now here. 
He knows that he's going to be taken into custody, and in just a few short hours, he's going to be declared guilty. But he's not going to be declared guilty because of man's verdict. He's going to be declared guilty because God is declaring him guilty, because he is taking on the sins of his people. So Jesus says in verse 42, rise, let us be going. Now the passage started off in verse 32, if you look there, with him telling his disciples to sit. And he goes and he pleads with God to remove the hour from him. And now he says the hour has arrived. Now he tells his disciples, rise. Didn't you were sitting? Now let's rise. My request for the hour to be taken away didn't didn't come through. And so like the disciples, we too are called to watch and to pray. The primary tactic that we see Jesus give his disciples after the first time he finds them falling asleep, he says, watch and pray that you may may not fall into temptation. The primary tactic to avoid falling into temptation is watching and praying. Pray, have very honest, he then models for us what, what prayer looks like, very honest communication with the Father, and then watch for danger. There was a mob getting ready to come, He's telling them to watch for danger. There's danger still around us. Things that will try to take us away from Christ. Beliefs, ideologies, relationships, our job, our status, our thoughts. We need to watch these things. Again, another thing to see here, what it's like to feel alone. He knows what it's like to have friends and loved ones who are simply unreliable. Yet Jesus remains faithful. Jesus is the good friend that we long for. Jesus is the faithful one that we desire. Despite being betrayed by Judas, despite his unreliable friends, despite the father not answering his prayer the way that he asked, despite the father not removing the hour or removing the cup, out of his love for his people, Jesus rises and faces the hour. Clear distinction here. Faces the cup that is reserved for him. There's a clear distinction here happening between Jesus and the disciples. We see Jesus faithfully obeying his master. And we see the disciples continuously and repeatedly not obeying theirs from the disciples. But an example of faithfulness from Christ is that if, as you read the next passage, the disciples, the unfaithful ones, are the ones who go free. And Jesus, the faithful one, is the one who's taken into custody and declared guilty. Because the hour is coming, we must keep watch. We've talked about the hour that Jesus faced. But here's the thing. Jesus, that hour of judgment, he took on the sins of his people. There's a future hour of judgment for all those who are not in Christ, where they will face the cup of God's wrath. We see this in Revelation 14. Then I saw another angel, nation and tribe and language and people, eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud hours, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth. 
the sea and the springs of the water. Jesus faced the hour faithfully. In that hour, he took on the sins of his people. But if you are not in Christ, there's a future hour coming where your sins will be paid for. And if you have not depended on Christ to pay for your sins, then you will be the one to pay for them. I would encourage you. Other things, call on Christ. Call on the faithful one. We've all been unfaithful. We've all pursued other things. We're all more like the disciples than we are Jesus. And we all need someone to enter into that God-forsaken place for us on our behalf. It's interesting to note that in this passage, Jesus is here because in the first garden of creation, God placed Adam there. And Adam was unfaithful. And he sent all of humanity into a fallen state. And now we see another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, with another Adam-like figure, the second and the last Adam, the one who represents humanity, faithful. And it's in this garden where we see the representative for humanity is faithful. Where the first Adam plunged us into a fallen state separated from God, we see this second Adam being faithful so that we can be reunited to God. The question this morning is, which app are you in? It says again, Jesus has entered our God-forsaken condition so that we might share his God-accepted relationship to the Father. Because Jesus was perfectly faithful, we can now enjoy the perfect God-acceptance that we were designed for. Call on Christ this morning. Enjoy that relationship with the Father. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, grateful for your word, grateful for this plan of salvation that you have kindly and generously provided. Jesus, we praise you for your faithfulness. Thank you not only for sharing your emotions and being extremely transparent with your disciples, but then also with the Father and modeling that for us. But thank you that even in your most pressing moments, when things weren't going the way that you had prayed for, that you were still faithful. And it's in your faithfulness that we find hope this morning. Father, thank you for providing us with a faithful one. It's in his name we pray. Amen.